Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. I'm Ammon Swenson. Earlier this month, the Anchorage Assembly held the Community Housing Action Summit at UAA as part of their Housing Action Week. The summit included discussions on housing data, homelessness, and solutions to the city's housing shortage. The Assembly also gave a preview of their Housing Strategic Plan. Coming up, we'll hear the session, Anchorage's housing shortage is an everyone problem. The speakers discuss issues the city faces in terms of the housing market. We'll hear Nolan Clauda of the Center for Economic Development at the UAA Business Enterprise Institute and Mike Robbins, Executive Director of the Anchorage Community Development Authority. This was recorded on Friday, November 3rd at the UAA Student Union. Anchorage Assembly members Anna Brawley and Felix Rivera hosted the event. Rivera speaks next. So it's clear that housing hits close to home for folks, and everyone is excited to talk about housing, which is really great. So next, we're going to hear from some local experts to understand the Anchorage housing shortage problem. Uh, So first, uh, we'll hear from Nolan Clauda, Executive Director of the Center for Economic Development at the UAA Business Institute. Nolan previously presented to the Assembly and industry leaders during a housing retreat this spring. His findings defined problems that we knew existed but didn't always have the words to express and are actively helping policymakers create solutions. This is one of the vital roles of research universities in our community. Local researchers inform local actions. Today, Nolan will present updated data and paint a picture detailing the current landscape of housing in Anchorage's economy. Nolan, welcome. So uh, thanks, thanks very much, Felix, and I appreciate the chance to be here today. So in addition to being um, somebody who kind of goes around and comments on things happening in the economy, uh, I am also a human who lives here in Anchorage and has the same basic kinds of needs for food and shelter uh, as everyone else. And so, um, so I do have a, a housing story to share um, also that in uh, 2019, my, uh, my partner Michelle and I were looking for a home. We had a, we had a baby that was going to be due very soon. We realized we lived in too small of a place and we, we really needed to upgrade. And so, so we, you know, had the same exp- had the experience of going onto the housing market and, you know, we had our, our budget was this much and we had these, this checklist of things that we wanted to see in a house and this neighborhood and these attributes and, and so on. And then, uh, like so many people before us and since who have been on the housing market, you, you realize that that budget is too small and that list of things that you want is too big. And, uh, you have to make some compromises. And so we had a, a really depressing experience, you know, going around looking for the places that are there. You know, one place, uh, was, was, was pretty good, but it was really going to need about $80,000 or so worth of work to be, you know, uh, to be really fully up to, up to par for, you know, kids. And so we were not quite in the mood for a fixer upper. Um, another one had like a deep saturation of cigarette smoke and our realtor said, forget it. You're going to have to strip it down to the studs. And then my personal favorite home, uh, that crushed us was the, this beautiful house in a great neighborhood that was very, uh, very, very big for the houses we've been looking at and also very competitively priced, very good price. And so we went, looked at it and we're like, wow, this, this is just a, this is a really fantastic house. And then I remember walking on the top floor of it and you ever have that feeling, you know, when you're walking on level ground, it feels a certain way. When you're walking downhill, it feels a certain way. And this felt more like the downhill kind of thing. Um, and a house is supposed to be pretty level, but this house was not. So uh, we decided that we would have to take a hard pass on the house that was leaning pretty hard to the right. 
Um, and, and so we ended up in a really good place, actually, after, after all of that. I think we're, we're really some of the fortunate ones. We live in Bayshore. We have a house that meets the needs. We now have two little ones, and uh, we're in really good shape. And so, so my, my experience is, is really one of, of privilege, but having had a taste of how rough it can be out there. But I think what really gets, hits hard is how much things have changed just in the four years since then. And I think this is something that I, I saw a lot of people had bought their home, you know, that our homeowners had bought their house recently. Um, so you know a lot of the pain. Um, I think a lot of times when you've lived in your house for a while, you, you, you don't necessarily know how much worse it's gotten since you got your home um, in a lot of cases. And so since 2019, uh, the average listing price in Anchorage increased by more than $100,000. I mean, this is, this is much faster than the rate of inflation, much faster than the weight of any typical wage growth that we've seen. Um, so, it's a, it's a, it's a, so we're talking about a pretty dramatic cost increase. This is something that happened nationally, but it certainly happened here in Anchorage. And then at the same time, the amount of inventory on the market, like I, we felt like we had so little to choose from, is down by 72%. So it's only about a quarter of what it was just four years ago. I mean, so when you're on the market and you're looking for homes, you have a lot less to choose from. So we didn't have to get into a multi-bid situation like a lot of people did. Um, you know, we, we didn't have to, we, you know, we were fortunate to not have to experience housing insecurity like so many out there do. Um, but but this is, this is a, it's a pretty amazing thing to look at how little there really is on the market. And, and one of the things that's, that's different about this, that's, that is different from, from Anchorage versus other places in the U.S., is that you know, we all saw a big demand in housing, big cost increase in housing nationally. It's not a, not a totally new thing, not a totally unique thing to, to Anchorage, but uh, other places tended to respond by building more homes. Um, so just a little bit of demonstration here, talk about the, the amount of homes that we build here in Anchorage. Um, I, I, I did this little exercise of if, if the Matsu Valley had the same, if adjusted for population, like on a per capita basis, if we built the same amount of homes that they build in the Matsu Valley, which, you know, is not going to happen for a variety of reasons, it would be about 2,000 houses. Now, Matsu Valley has very different circumstances. It's not something that Anchorage can, can mimic or, 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 or emulate, but, but in the Matsu Valley, it's a much lower cost of land, a lot more available flat land that can be built upon. Um, so uh, just as a reference point, 2,000 houses if, if it was scaled to Anchorage's population. Um, and the Matsu Valley, by the way, builds about, set, about, about two out of five homes built in Alaska. The entire state of Alaska are built in the Matsu Valley, and that's a much bigger share than its, than its total share of the population. Um, but if we were to build homes at the nationwide rate, you know, adjusted for Anchorage's size, it would be about 1,500 housing units per year. So that's a pretty good amount. Um, it's about double the statewide rate. Um, we, the state, in the state of Alaska, uh, if Anchorage built at the overall statewide level adjusted for our population, it would be about 700. But I think some of us here probably already know the answer to what Anchorage actually builds each year. It's about 400 units, um, which is, which is very, a very small number for a, for a community our size. So, so the state of Alaska as a whole, it ranks near the bottom of all states as far as the number of homes we build. And Anchorage is very low even within the state of Alaska. And so that, that really does, you know, kind of ask, brought us to ask, you know, why, why is that? What is it that we can do differently? Why, what, are, what are some of the circumstances that create that problem, right? And so what are, what are some of those circumstances? Well, you know, we do have really high construction costs, uh, for one thing, right? So it, it costs, um, you know, the figure that, that builders say is, you know, it's roughly 40% above, like, the national average to build, to build in, in Anchorage, and, and it you know, varies throughout the state. Anchorage is not necessarily the most expensive place to build, right? Um, interest rates right now are very high. The last couple of years, you know, they are very high. Not a, not a great time to, to take a mortgage in a lot of ways, um, but, but uh, so that's certainly a factor. Land availability, something of a factor. Um, I think that this is always one, like, are we out of land in Anchorage? Are we not out of land? I mean, we're, we're not, I mean, we're built in such a low-density format that it's really hard to say that we're out of land. 
Um, but, you know, we don't necessarily have a tremendous amount of greenfield development that can be developed, you know, inexpensively. So it's not necessarily a lot of land that's available and profitable to develop. Um, there's a lot more sort of infill opportunities or, or land that needs infrastructure access or other kind of expensive um, improvements in order to make it work. So, so the two things that we do have, the, so those, th those three things we don't necessarily have a lot of control over, right? And construction costs are also high in the Matsu Valley, too, and other places where they're building more homes in the state than we are. So it can't be just that. Interest rates, we didn't build any more houses when interest rates were low. Um, you know, land availability, we, we have a limited amount we can do about that. Permitting processes and zoning and codes. Now, it, I don't want to say that this is the entire problem. It's not the entire problem. But these are two things that we might have some ability to have some control over. So whatever they might be contributing to the problem of not building enough homes um, is, worth, is really worth a hard look. Um, it, it really is worth a hard look, I think. Um, this other question is, why do we actually need to build more housing when our population isn't really growing? Like, you know, we, we know that I think, I think probably most folks here realize that Anchorage has is, is actually shrunk a bit. Um, we have fewer, fewer people than we did about 10 years ago. Um, we're on, we, you know, we've had a, a bad out-migration trend. Um, but probably a lot of people don't realize that we have more households than we did 10 years ago. And why would that be? Uh, well, it, it, it's because less of our population consists of families with children. When you have kids, you know, you have more people living in a home. Um, so we have more, more of our population consists of adults now than it used to. And so, you know, if you think about a, a family with kids, you, you know, say it's a family with teenagers 10 years ago, now those kids are adults and they need their own housing. So people that used to fit into one house now are spread across, say, three households if it's two kids, right? Uh, so, so we have fewer people per household. Um, in place. And so that creates kind of ongoing demand for housing. And then you also have some amount of housing decay and deterioration. You lose some housing to fires. You lose housing to aging. Um, about half the homes in Anchorage were built in either the 70s or the 80s. So they don't last forever without needing some significant rehabilitation. So you need to build some, you need more, more housing units being added even when your population isn't necessarily growing that fast. Um, the rent is too damn high. Uh, the um, so, so the, the median rent, you know, this is for a typical apartment in Anchorage is, is about $1,500 per month, right? Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, we have a vacancy rate of about, of about 4%. And um, so to put, put that in perspective, the U.S. rental vacancy rate is around, around 6% right now, and that's a multi-decade low. Um, so, it, so vacancy, you know, 6% vacancy rate would be a, is actually a pretty tight market. We're 4%, so we're an even tighter market. And, and you, you look at what the role that rental housing plays. It, it, I mean, for, for a lot of people, uh, it fills a variety of needs. A lot of people who haven't had the financial resources to be able to purchase a home. Um, a lot of times, younger people are more mobile people. If you are, say, like a, an early career teacher or a nurse who wants to move to Alaska, um, and we need both of those types of professions really badly, you are going to have a pretty hard time um, you know, with, with you're, you're probably going to rent, right? Like that's probably going to be the easiest way to get into the market. So you need that kind of flexibility of, that rental housing provides. And, uh, and it's something we, we haven't built a lot of rental housing, a lot of multifamily housing um, in, in the last few decades. This is something that's not terribly profitable for developers to build. A lot of what does get built is, is usually with, with some amount of public money. Um, there's this other issue too that I think is also worth mentioning, and that is the, the issue of short-term rentals. Uh, the, it's, it's something, something interesting to look at is that in, in 2022, between 2022 and 2023, the number of, of, of um, short-term rentals in Anchorage increased by about 400 units. That's about the same amount of units that we built. So uh, I, I don't necessarily want to attribute 
too much blame to, to short-term rentals, but I think that there's some amount of contribution that they make to, to squeezing housing and raising rents and, and really lowering accessibility availability of them. So I think that, that nationally we do know at, at the national level from studies that, that uh, short-term rentals do increase the cost of rent. And so there is likely you know, a contribution that they make. Uh, the problem for me is that each year going by, if we keep seeing the growth of more and more of our housing getting tied up as short-term rentals, um, you know, that's, a, that's not a good trajectory to be on. That is coming to some degree at the expense of our housing stock. So you know, there is some logic, I think, to the idea, not of eliminating them necessarily, um, but, but of, of placing some kinds of limitations on them. I think there is a case for that. Uh, so, you know, where, where do we go from here? I think, I think that um, I'm excited to hear more about the Assembly's uh, strategic plan, and I did have a chance to take a look at it, and I think it does align with a lot of, with, with you know, the, the kind of three core ideas that I, that I mentioned here. Um, you know, one is that, is that allowing for some amount of increased density. I think this, this, there are ways of, you know, the, the, the buzz term is the, the gentle density, I think, which is, you know, what can we do to allow a little bit more housing to get built on the land, the buildable footprint that we have? You know, a lot of times our zoning does not allow for that. It sets, it sets density minimums, and I think that, that what can we do to relax some of those that would allow for more housing to get built on a given amount of land, especially when we're looking at redevelopment opportunities or infill development opportunities, is there a chance to increase the amount of density, to increase the amount of housing that's there? Um, also looking at any kind of streamlining of permitting processes. Is there, are there things that we can do to make it a bit easier to build? Um, you know, and this is not something about trying to, to cast blame, um, but I think that, that a lot of places in the U.S. look at this in a sort of a competitive way. How can we be as, as friendly to the right kinds of development as we possibly can? And then also looking at developer incentives, things like property tax abatement for building new multifamily, or sort of um, ways of publicly financing some of the site infrastructure to make some of our undeveloped land, you know, more, um, more economical for developers to, to build on. So, uh, so, yeah, so I, I look forward to the discussion today, and uh, thank you very much for the chance to speak. Yeah, thank you, Nolan. Um, but also, I just want to observe a couple things. First, um, the market is rough out there. Um, so I know the folks who are, are looking for a house, who work in that industry, you, you know the deal. Um, but the rest of us, you know, including me, who aren't, aren't looking for a new home right now, maybe aren't aware of that. But so, so then you think, well, why should I worry about that? That's somebody else's problem, right? Well, really what we're talking about is where our kids are going to live, our grandkids, where our parents maybe want to move and have a smaller house they don't have to take care of. Um, where our employees are going to live, our teachers, our first responders, um, our snowplow drivers, and then really our families. I really want to emphasize that too. You know, I, we've all seen the news about folks, uh, working age folks moving out of state. That is a family who's not choosing to live here, to not have their kids grow up here, to go to UAA, to go to other places. So, so really, th this is an everyone problem, as we keep saying. Um, and I also just want to put a fine point. When we talk about building housing, uh, everybody thinks of the single-family house. What we really want to talk about is all housing. Uh, certainly, detached housing, you know, you've got one structure per lot, that's one type of housing. We've also got condos, attached housing, townhomes, and of course, apartments. You know, not everybody wants to, be, to buy in a home. Not everybody at the, is at their stage of life that they would want to. So we want to make sure we have options for everybody at all parts of the market. Um, so with that, I think we'll move on to our next speaker. So again, um, hold your questions for now, write them down, turn them in, and then we'll get back to uh, Q&A after the next presenter. All right. So now we're going to welcome Mike Robbins to the stage. Mike is the executive director of the Anchorage Community Development Authority, a municipal corporation that encourages responsible development and redevelopment through partnerships and community engagement. 
This year, ACDA hired a McKinley Research Group to explore policies that incentivize development of attainable housing. And for folks who don't know that definition, we define it as housing that is affordable to households earning about the average level of income relative to a community. So today, Mike is here to report on their findings. Mike, welcome. Thank you, Felix, and we appreciate being here. So I, have, I too have my own housing story. Um, we bought our house uh, about 12 years ago. We were one of the lucky ones that bought when the market was way down. Um, it had that smell in it that, that uh, Nolan was talking about. And uh, we couldn't afford our house today. Uh, if we had to go and buy that house, uh, there's no way we could afford to live in that neighborhood or be able to buy the, the house at the value that it has increased by. So lucky me, but that's one of the challenges with housing in a market like ours, um, is that when someone buys a small home, uh, they end up selling it because of the um, amount of the growth in the price, and um, the next guy in has to pay for that. So my son, my story about housing is that you know, I sent my son away to college, and I thought, great, he's going to come back. He wanted to come back to Anchorage. I was lucky to that in that regard. So he went down and he got his degree at University of Portland. He came back and uh, guess where he's living? <laughs> because he can't, you know, he was able to get a job. He decided he wanted to be an attorney, so he went to work. He got a full-time job. Um, he was working at a decent hourly rate, but he couldn't afford an apartment. And the apartments he could afford weren't somewhere that he wanted to, to spend his time living in. And so it's, it's uh, not like Nolan's story exactly, but it's part of the reason that uh, several months back we did retain McKinley Research to do a study. And I'd like to just give them a round of applause. Moria, could you stand up, please, for McKinley? She's here today. So if you have any real questions about our data, just catch her, because she's the smart person who did this, not us. So. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go through really quick um, and kind of give you some highlights from this survey. We'll be handing out copies, uh, and it is also available for download uh, on the ACDA website, so you'll be able to go there after the, the symposium today, and you can pick a copy. So before we, uh, why does uh, housing matter? So this was a, there was a study done by AADC some years ago that talked about uh, why housing is important to a community. If you look at this, chart, I think it tells a pretty a story similar to what Assemblymember Brawley was talking about, that 47% of the people surveyed weren't happy with their housing. You look at the number of 15% um, of the employers that were surveyed had job candidates turn down jobs uh, at their company because when they got to Anchorage, they, they didn't like the housing situation. Um, only 8% 8, 8 of their employees said that they were happy with their housing choices in Anchorage. And, of course, they rated also the areas to live in the city, and downtown ended up to be number one. So it's important to a city for attraction of workers. It's important to a city for um, also for uh, maintaining our workforce. And before we – I wanted this, – this is a slide that talks about the housing spectrum. And if you look at this, I think it mirrors Anchorage pretty well. Um, you have your lower-end housing that's publicly funded for those of us that are experiencing – you know, for those in the community that are experiencing homelessness, it's completely supported. Uh, and then it goes all the way up to privately, 100% privately funded housing. And so what we did is we wanted to look at a segment of the marketplace because there's a lot of work being done 
on the lower side of the spectrum. There's a lot of work being done by CHAW and, and several other organizations to try to deal with, uh, with housing, but we wanted to focus on that sort of mid-range, people who have a job or maybe both husband and wife are working <clears throat> but can't afford housing. And so what is attainable housing? I think Felix gave you some sort of an indication. Attainable housing is defined by HUD as um, housing that can be purchased by people earning between $79,000 a year and $119,000 a year adjusted for Anchorage, as opposed to um, affordable housing, which is usually for the 80% or below. The average house, pricing house in Anchorage was $456,000. or $456, And so when you look at the attainable housing thresholds, and you look at that annual income of $79,000, you'll see that in order to do that, you have to be able to purchase a house at $265,000 a year. Is there anybody who's been looking for a house lately in Anchorage? You have. Was there a lot of choices in that two sixty-five dollars range? <laughs> I went online yesterday, and I saw that there were about 48 houses in Anchorage for sale under $300,000, and they averaged about $300 a square foot. It was pretty, pretty intense when you look at the pricing. And then it, you go all the way up to your 120% of medium income, which most of us, we figure if we're, we're earning 120% of AMI, we're doing pretty well, right? We're successful. We consider that to be successful. Well, you got to be able to buy a house at $397,000. And you won't find a lot of inventory and acreage right now in that price range either. So defining attainable housing is important. And this chart really tells a story. If you look at 2013, and you look at the number of units that were built under 300,000 or were for sale or sold in the marketplace, and then you look at 2022 and you look at the difference, you can see that there's been a massive migration up on the scale. And Nolan pegged it when he said that since 2019, housing prices have gone up over $100,000. And actually, if you look at the last two years, average housing prices have gone up over $89,000. So a lot of that growth has been in just the last two years post-COVID. And what it's doing is it's driving housing out of reach of the, the, the ones who are hardest hit here aren't people like me that are sort of, you know, I'm 62. It's my son. He's, 20, he's in that 25 to 40-year-old age group. He's starting his life. I hope he gets married soon. Maybe he has a family and some grandkids. He can't afford housing. So the hardest hit demographic from this shift in housing prices is that 25 to 40-year-old. So attainable, attainable housing development, this just shows you... Uh, all these graphs and everything that's in here is in the report that we're going to be handing out. And so this just shows you what's been happening with population, what's been happening with uh, housing construction, both multifamily and single family. What you're going to find inside the report is you're going to find population projections, uh, you're going to find homes sold, you're going to find the obstacles to attain attainable housing development, and then in some incentives, some suggested incentives. And so one of the things that we did uh, is we tasked McKinley with, instead of just uh, anecdotally saying, well, we could try this or we could do this, because I, I have to applaud, the Assembly's been doing a really good job this last 24 months of really putting their shoulder in to try to figure out how we can solve the housing problem. But we, had, we asked McKinley to go out and do some market studies and actually study other markets that had a problem with housing. Now, we, I showed this slide once before, and they said, well, yeah, but those places aren't Anchorage. Well, you're right, they're not. But one of the things that they all have in common is that they had the same problem that we have today, a decade ago. And what they did is they found common solutions that worked in their communities for ways in which they could affect the housing market. 
And you'll see those case studies outlined completely in our report so that you can look at them and you can analyze them for yourself. These are the results, that, and, and I think results do matter. So when you look at Billingham, Washington, they were able to build 1,164 units in the last decade of just attainable housing. This isn't their overall housing development. This is just in that attainable price range. Bend, Oregon, 297. Boise, Idaho, 1,520. And you can see what Missoula did as well. So we think that there's some really good, uh, hard information in the report that you can look at that will help you to understand not only the housing problem that we have here in Anchorage, but also some ways that we can fix it. So when you look at the incentives that were offered, um, one of the other things that we did is we broke those incentives into categories to try to make it easy to understand. And so you'll see financial, process, zoning, and, and then of course sustainable uh, attainability is the last one. So what are the takeaways from the study? Um, I, I think that financially, one of the things that we need to do in Anchorage is we need to develop a, an area-wide tax incentive for multifamily housing. Um, right now we have specific targeted areas, and I'm going to show you a map here in a second as to where those are. But we did area-wide area tax incentives for multifamily so that we get more multifamily infill in some of the neighborhoods. Excuse me. We also need to uh, come up with a way to help fund infrastructure for builders for single-family home developments. Uh, I've heard numbers as high as 35 or 40% of the cost of building a house is putting in the roads and the sidewalks and the sewer and the and all of the utilities. Well, those are all things that we're going to own as a city, not the builder. And we should come up with a way to fund those um, for development, not for the builder, but for our population so that we can afford to buy homes. And then um, we also should form a housing land trust. One of the things that you'll, you'll see in the study, we talk about <clears throat> at length is Housing land trust, what it does is it picks up pieces, it picks up land, and then it makes it a land available for first-time home buyers on a deed restriction so that John can buy a home because he's a first-time home buyer with his wife, and then he can sell it five years later, but he's not allowed to sell it and realize the entire profit. He's able to realize a small portion of that so that it keeps that house affordable, so that when it resells, it has that same deed restriction on it so that the next person five years later can buy it at that attainable or that affordable range so that he can be a first-time home buyer. For most of us um, in this room, your house is the largest purchase you're ever going to make. Now, I know I see some boat owners out there, and I know your wives probably think that that's the largest purchase you ever made. But homeownership is, is really key to building personal wealth for families. And what we're doing right now, again, is we're hurting that 25 to 40-year-old age group in our house, in our population, by not allowing that. So in addition to the financial incentives, we need to come up with some zoning incentives. Um, we're not, I'm not a zoning expert by any stretch of the imagination, don't want to pretend I am, but in talking to builders and in looking through the report, because we also talk to local builders, we need to deal with setbacks so we can get, we can build larger density, more density on those lots. We also need to look at Title 21 reform. Everybody I talk to, every builder you talk to talks about Title 21 reform. And, and ways in which that drives up the cost of construction. Procedural, I think that we should, and this isn't a new idea, so those of you who've been around for more than a day have heard this suggested multiple times, and that is that we need a housing liaison officer, but we need a housing liaison at the municipality who isn't a clerk. It's someone who has the ability to deal with 
managers and directors and people at the level that they can actually get things done. Somebody who can manage the incentives uh, and work with the builders to help get them through the process that can promote our incentives and encourage builders to build. And then we also need to reduce our time to permitting. You know, there's a lot of talk about uh, permitting department and planning and all of the challenges that we have there. And those, it, it's easy to blame your problems on someone else. But that is, you know, if you look at the housing pie and what it takes to construct and to, you know, all the way from the beginning of the process to the end of the process, that is only one small part of it. All right, there's a lot of other things that go into it. Community councils have an impact on the process. There's a lot of things. So we need to find a way to help reduce the time to permit, whatever that is. And I think that some of the plan that the Assembly's got and some of the things that we're working on are going to do just that. So thank you very much. I just want to say thank you for giving us an opportunity. Really quickly, you can find all current incentives in the marketplace at uh, acda.net. They're listed here. This is a map that shows you where all the incentives areas are available here in the city. Thank you very much. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. We're hearing a portion of the Anchorage Assembly's Community Housing Action Summit from earlier this month. We'll have links to all the materials on the Addressing Alaskans webpage and podcast notes. Assembly member Anna Brawley speaks next. Yeah, thank you, Mike. And I really encourage folks to read the report. Um, and I think that was a great summary. Um, I want to just share quiz, quick takeaways before we get to our questions. So a couple of uh, takeaways from both of these presentations to think about. Uh, one is that housing is a big, complex problem. I think we know that there's a lot of technical aspects to it. I see some eyes glazing over. We'll get more into kind of how some of these policy pieces uh, interact in real life and look at some real-world examples this afternoon. Um, but really just to say this is something we have to attack from multiple angles. Another one is that we're not alone. So we have uh, examples of other case studies of cities, not just that are similar to us in some ways, but also who have been able to make some progress and to um, actually get more housing built. I also want to um, observe that those four case studies, all of them are university towns. We are also a university town. We have a great student population. Um, it brings a lot of energy and vitality and um, intellectual curiosity and, and research to the city. Um, so, so just to think about kind of the ways that we're similar to those other places, even though in some ways they're different. And then also, uh, we have the power to change things. So that's really what today is about. It's not about dwelling on all of the problems. We need to understand them. We need to understand that we have the power to solve um, some of those problems, and then that's where we can focus our energy. So with that, um, we will turn to questions. I want to um, invite Nolan and Mike uh, to stay on the stage, and then uh, we will just let you guys uh, take them as you like. So the first one is from online, and it is, how can Anchorage ensure efforts to make attainable and low-income housing is spread equitably throughout our community? So uh, I think that one of the ways that we can ensure, we can ensure that um, our housing incentives are spread equitably across the community is to do, for example, one of the ideas that we put forth, which is the housing trust. That, that is one way to ensure that the young people in our population those that are just starting their careers, um, anyone who is in that lower income bracket has an opportunity to buy a first time home because those are the things that are out of reach right now. And so I think that's one of the things is some sort of a housing land trust that focuses on single family homes. 
Yeah, and I, I like what I like what Mike answered there. I think that that's a, a really important way to look at it. I, one thing that I that I would really emphasize about housing is that more the more housing is like if we're if we're being really crude and, uh, and blunt about it, more housing across the board is the solution to affordability. Um, even even very expensive houses getting built is good for affordability for the overall housing market. But that being said, um, it is much better to see. A variety of price points getting built. And so I think it, it's good to see some amount of housing that might be in the form of something that's the, targeting like the, the starter home type of demographic and maybe more like townhomes. Also to not neglecting rental housing too, because there are, you always need a certain amount of rental housing for people that are um, not ready to own a home or that are more, um, you know, mobile and moving to a place for the first time. For a variety of reasons, rental housing is really important. So, so putting, um, you know, emphasizing sort of a broad range of housing types. Yeah, thank you. All right, next question coming from the room. Um, construction costs. So what can we do to build public infrastructure to support new development? Um, the answer is have Mike do it. Uh, no, I, um, I think I, I do think that that um, you know we we do tend to have a model of development you know in in Anchorage and and it's and really in a lot of Alaska where we put a lot of costs onto the developer to build a lot of the site infrastructure. And so a lot of them are burdened with building infrastructure that's actually going to benefit more than just the property that they make, um, you know, having to rebuild, for instance, roads that are used by many other users besides people on their development. And so I, I think that looking at some kinds of, of, of special funds that might be available to build that, um, it's not just a giveaway cost. There's a, there's a return on this kind of investment. If you build property that increases the tax base of Anchorage, increases revenue to the city, then, um, then, and, and you make an investment in order to make that happen, that's, that's not a giveaway, and that's, that's a good thing. And I think we need to take a little bit more of an investment type of mindset to that site infrastructure. I was going to say let Nolan do it, but... I think that uh, I think you're absolutely correct. I think the establishment of some sort of an infrastructure bank. There's no reason that 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 our city should expect builders to put roads in, in sidewalks. Obviously, when they're building a development, but but we can recover the cost of some sort of an infrastructure bank where we we make that money available for them to rebuild. In the example of water and sewer, for example, that money's going to come back to us in the form of payment to AWWU. We're going to recover that money, and so it's not a cost; it's an investment. And, that was what I think. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, the next question is about uh, land availability. So do we need all of our vacant industrial land? And then can Heritage Land Bank make more land available? So I think generally kind of the idea that we see these vacant properties around town, each one has a different story. How can we really be accessing more of that land that isn't built on yet? So, I, I you know, uh, one of the things I neglected to say during my presentation is that we have to focus on things we can fix. We can't fix a problem by focusing on, for example, the cost of wood or the cost of uh, transport. We have to focus on things we can fix. And to a certain extent, land is one of those things. We can only focus on the land that we've got available to us. Yes, there are probably parcels of land, and I know that Heritage Land Bank just had an open house to look at developing some of their vacant parcels. Uh, but there's a process that we go through, and there's a reason we have something like Heritage Land Bank. It's designed to protect... For example, if we hadn't had it 15 years or 20 years ago to accumulate this land that it has now, we wouldn't even have that resource to try to apply to this problem. And so we have to remember that for future generations too. So it would be great to go raid all of the heritage land, land, land but, but then what, is, what does my son do when they have this problem with, for his kids in 35 years? And so we have to think long term. We didn't get here... Uh, it, you know, it hasn't been a problem that occurred in two years. This is a problem that's got here through decades of poor planning and poor processes here in Alaska. 
So I think that, yes, we can use Heritage Land Bank land. I think there's things we can do. The federal government still owns land right in the center of our city. One of the largest plots of land is owned by the feds. We need to apply pressure to them. So there's lots of places to get land, but the infrastructure we talked about is one of the ways we can help break that loose, too. Yeah, and I think I think the infrastructure funding, like as we've already talked about, is one of those important things that we can that we might have, be able to have some amount of control over that would make undeveloped land more economical. I, I think another thing to look at too is the way um, zoning, you know, the the complete you know separation of uses between business, you know, between commercial and residential and so on. I, I think it's it, that some there's some logic for doing it that way, but I think there also is this whole idea of mixed use development that we have a little bit of in Anchorage um, that makes a lot of sense. So we don't necessarily have to segregate off whole parts of the city, say no residential allowed here, you know, there, especially in, in places like in downtown Anchorage or other places, it makes a lot of sense to have, you know, um, what about those five over one style developments? You know, you have street front retail um, with, with living units above them. There's, these things are, are, you know, not common in Anchorage, but we don't have to necessarily radically segregate all uses like that. There are cases when mixed use development makes a lot of sense. That helps make better use of the land that's there, I think. Okay, thank you. Um, next one, um, we'll stay on the development topic for the moment. So uh, what is being discussed and directed toward downtown or midtown in terms of multi-resident, 10-story, uh, you know, lar larger complexes like those seen in uh, South Korea, Japan, places in Asia, and I'll say also other American cities? Just trying to be polite there. <laughs> I don't know if I could speak to it either other than to say that um, downtown is the most expensive area of the city to develop in. It's the most expensive land. It's the most expensive per square foot. So to look towards multi high to look towards high rises in downtown is to, is for solving our housing problem. I don't think is realistic. There's height restrictions that are placed on in current zoning on lots that might be able to help us with that. But there are, of course, there's there are projects being worked on in downtown for multifamily housing. But this feeds into one of the topics that you guys we were talking about earlier, which is the short-term rental problem we have. So if there's 400, uh, 400 to 600, whatever, short-term rentals in the marketplace right now, the only reason those exist is because we don't have enough hotel rooms during the summer. So our tourist industry has grown so much that we need more hotel rooms. If there were... If an, if an owner of a property could, couldn't make m way more money leasing those out during the summer than he could all year round having a lease, he wouldn't do it. I remember when I was a kid growing up here and I wanted to lease an apartment, we always had to sign a 12-month lease because that owner did not want that apartment empty during the wintertime. So he would make us take a longer-term lease. And those have gone up by the wayside as a result of the short-term rental. So I think that we have to be cautious about how we address the short-term rental, but we also need more hotel rooms because that will free up some of this inventory. And we also need to, to look at developing more multifamily units, which is something that we are doing right now. So next question is around attainability so and really affordability. So we've talked a lot about building new housing, reusing housing. Um, so this question is, uh, my children are in the military, so they're able to buy a home with zero down. You know, there's a lot of good um, home buying programs for uh, military and veterans. Um, is it possible to extend that or duplicate a t that type of benefit to our police, our fire, uh, school district, other muni employees? And I think maybe broadly, too, is there is there a way to extend that benefit to more folks? Um, and so that's really the question. And, and I'll turn that to you guys, but I'll also mention... Um, 
the assembly has been focusing on things that we can do, right, our local policy, but we're also really trying to be good advocates for the city at other levels. And so one thing that we're looking at is a, a federal bill, I believe it's called the Helper Act, and it proposes to have basically a, an accessible mortgage program for teachers, first responders, some other types of folks. So that would be a federal mortgage program that, that allows access to those things. So that's just a bill that's been introduced in Congress. Um, obviously, we know that's not moving right now, <laughs> um, but, but that's the kind of thing that we can also say that's beyond the scope of our city. So I just want to offer that as other options and other ways that we as a community and as um, policy leaders can be effective, even if it's something that we can't have direct control over. Um, but on that point, um, are there ways that we could institute local programs or, or are there discussions at other levels? I can't speak as much to the financing and what it takes to create, you know, these kinds of specialized finance programs. A lot of the ones that I'm aware of are at the federal level, you know, and they have larger financial resources sort of behind them uh, to make them happen. One thing I will say, though, is that, uh, uh, is that you know, programs that require no, no money down, it's, it's good to have these kinds of options available, like not to have to put money down and so on. But, but those are also saddling people with a bigger payment, right, and less equity in their home. And so they're, they're, not, um, they're not a complete, they're not a full blessing. I mean, I think it's, it's good to have the options out there for people to assess for their individual circumstances, but I don't see them as necessarily that much of a fix for the kind of affordability issues that we're seeing uh, in, in, you know, here in Anchorage and, and, and elsewhere. So I do think that there's an issue sometimes of people who are more money-constrained, um, them, getting them into a house that has a bigger payment, um, sometimes it's a mixed blessing. I think you're, you're correct. And I think that, again, it goes back to what I said earlier, which is we should focus on the things we can affect. It's not, I don't believe we should expect the assembly or the administration to put together a zero down, zero interest program for new home buyers, unless we're going to build them on our land with our builders, because that, that's a private enterprise thing, and I don't think we should mix with that. What we could do, though, for example, is if we lack teachers for the school district, we could offer, as a city, we could offer $10,000 bonuses to those teachers to move to Alaska that they could use for their down payment. But, but I don't think we should get in the middle of the transaction between a bank and a finance company and the home buyer because, as Nolan said, all we're doing is increasing the payment and making, you know, who knows if they can do it or not. So I think that the issue is to look at other ways we can affect housing inventory and bring the cost down. More inventory, prices go down. Thank you. And we'll do one more question, and I think um, this will end on a, on a positive note. Um, Cooperatively owned housing, so again, speaking to attainability, affordability, cooperatively owned housing can be an incredible way to empower residents and shield from the speculative market. How can we support those new and current efforts? And I'm going to turn to Mike for that one. So this is one of the suggestions we made was a housing land trust. So for example, we could work with the Heritage Land Bank and we could acquire some land and then we could prepare that land for development we could put out the RFP, bring builders in, have them build smaller, more attainable houses, not, you know, hold their costs down. Maybe we give them a permit holiday for building on that. We don't charge them for, we, we help them maintain and lower many of their expenses so they can build them less expensively. And then through deed restrictions, we just make that neighborhood or subdivision available over and over again as people churn through that housing. But again, the biggest solution, I believe, is inventory, as Nolan said, at all levels. The more inventory we build, the more affordable housing is. So we have to figure out and focus on the things that we can control. Focus on those things and we'll be successful. All right. Thank you both so much for your insights. Really appreciate it. Let's give them a round of applause.
You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. We're hearing a portion of the Anchorage Assembly's Community Housing Action Summit from earlier this month. We'll have links to all the materials on the Addressing Alaskans webpage and podcast notes. Next, we'll hear a preview and discussion of the Anchorage Assembly's Housing Strategic Plan with Assemblymember Anna Brawley. So you've heard us say many times that Anchorage has a housing problem, but it's actually many problems. And I think we've already started to kind of unpeel those layers today. Our aging housing stock, the high, high cost of building, rising prices, and ev- of course everybody in this room can relate to at least one of these problems. And as I said, we've already heard some of these challenges. But the good news is um, there's also many potential solutions. And what we've heard from other communities uh, who have had success in housing is that there isn't a single miracle cure. There isn't one policy, one um, program that we can put into place that would solve the problem on its own. It'll take a lot of different solutions from different parts of the community. So that's really um, something to understand, that there are solutions to all the problems up there, but uh, we really need to focus on what we can control or influence. Um, So with all those options, um, we really want to remind folks, too, kind of the role of the assembly. Um, So we want to focus on things that we have influence over. We can lead on policy direction and code changes, that first column there. Um, We can support others, the second column, uh, others who are leading the charge, for example, AWWU, ACDA, and, of course, our private sector, the folks who actually build and, and renovate our housing. And then we can also um, really, if it's if it's something that is a policy need that we can't do on our own, it's not our it's not in our sphere. We can advocate to our state and local, or st- sorry, state and federal leaders. Um, so from there, we really want to work on the uh, the solutions that have the most impact and the quickest return. So that's really we've been looking at. All of the prior plans, uh, recommendations, studies that we've done over the years as the municipality and with our partners to really pick out what we think is going to have the most impact. So what we've done is really look at a strategic planning process, so really setting out a clear vision, uh, identifying some clear goals to guide our work, and then, t- and then working on what our priorities are going to be. So strategic planning is both a process and a product. Um, So it's a process where an entity defines its vision for the future and goals to achieve that vision. Um, So in this case, we're talking about the the assembly, what we're going to be doing, but I want to really emphasize that what we're doing is not in a vacuum, that we need to be working with all the other players in this room, um, all levels of government, with private sector, with everybody who can really contribute to these solutions. Um, But but because we're talking about something that that we're, we're focusing on what we can lead on, that's why we're focusing there. So that process results in um, in a strategic plan, a product. Um, so that is a plan that has about a three- to five-year time frame. Usually it's not, not 20 years, not 50 years. It's really focused on what you can do in the, the short to medium term. And it looks at achievable goals, actions, and then also metrics for success um, to achieve in in that time frame. Um, So along the way, we really want to get input from stakeholders to make sure that our plan resonates with the community, that it's achievable, and that we can get buy-in from other folks so that we can work together to really achieve um, these goals. 
So that's where you come in. Um, so we really want you to look over the draft plan that you have. Um, as I said, we've been developing it over the last couple months. We've had some initial discussions, but it is not a done document. You'll see that it is printed out. It says draft. So we really want your feedback, and we want to test out some of these assumptions. And then we also really want everybody's input on where we should focus first. Um, so whether it's something that's a big, a big step that'll take a lot of time, but we need to start now, or something that's more low-hanging fruit, something that we can turn around and do more quickly that will have an impact on our issues. So the document we passed out has a lot of details, but for now we're going to focus on the first two pages. Um, so first we're going to look at the vision. So the vision is that we have a affordable, abundant, and diverse housing opportunities so that everyone who wants to live here in Anchorage, it, it, in the municipality as a whole, can find a home that fits their needs and preferences. That's really the goal. So again, we're not, we're not promising everybody a 10,000 square foot house. We really want the market to figure that out and everybody to have opportunities to do that. But there's steps that we need to do because a lot of our current market or a lot of our com current community is not being served. We also set guiding principles to really serve as our compass. So when we're having to make tough decisions or we're having to really negotiate out, you know, what does this policy look like? What are the trade-offs? Um, who benefits and, and who's maybe going to pay? When we get into all those kind of discussions, we really want to stay focused on what our guiding principles are that help us make these decisions. Um, so as we said, you know, as individual assembly members, we won't all agree on the same solutions, and we know that there's a lot of different perspectives in this room and outside of this room. But when we have disagreements, we really can come back to these principles um, to, to focus on why we're doing this work in the first place and then help us make those choices. And I'll just point out a couple. Um, housing choice. Again, we're not telling people where to live. We want people to have that choice, whether it's a neighborhood, a type of house, um, something that fits their needs. Uh, maybe their needs change over the, the span of their life, right? Like making sure that there's opportunities for folks. And then I also want to point out government that works. So what we're talking about is really um, helping our government be a better partner in development, a better partner in the way that we do things. And, and again, not because government is the only solution, but we need to be part of the solution. And we need to recognize that we can be a partner. We can have that positive relationship with our development community, with our neighborhoods, and really that we can, that we can work on this problem together. And then finally, I'll just highlight our goals. So again, these are um, how we achieve the vision, and it gives us a clear direction of what we're going to do. So I'll read them off briefly. Increase the supply of housing units for sale and for rent. As we said, this isn't just about people buying houses. This is about having options for everybody and, and, and everybody across the income spectrum. Two is diversify the housing market. We want to have more types of housing, more sizes, price points, locations, and ownership models. So we talked about community land trusts. We talked about opportunities for cooperative housing. We could, we could allow more innovative ideas to flourish in our city. The third one, increase the share of resident-occupied housing throughout the year and reduce the number of vacant units. And I think this one is an interesting one to unpack, and we'll get into all of these in more detail later. Um, but this relates to we want people living in our housing. We've heard from folks in Girdwood talking about dark homes, for example. You know, homes that, that, that are, look like a house, but no one lives there. And that is really a missed opportunity to have somebody who wants to be in our community and wants to contribute. And so that's, that's really a place to look. And then, of course, we all 
no, uh, it, that house in the neighborhood that's always been a problem, maybe it looks like a haunted house, right? And so we want to really reduce the number of vacant units that are, that are putting a burden on the rest of us in our neighborhoods. The fourth one, reduce housing cost burdens and ensure safe, affordable, permanent housing for all residents. And again, housing cost burden means if you're paying half of your income on rent, you're, you're, you might be food insecure. You're certainly not able to save up for a house. And when your kid gets sick, then that's a real stress point for you because you can't pay half of your rent, right? You have to pay the whole thing. And so really looking at uh, other ways that we can reduce that housing cost, but also recognizing that the cost of housing burdens some more than others. So focusing on how we can make it more uh, possible to live in our city. And then lastly, make the municipality a better partner in the development process. Again, that is uh, one a theme that's come up. There's ways that we can improve our processes, that we can help folks get to yes, get things built faster, and really bring us up to par with a lot of other communities that are very development-friendly and more and more that we see we're competing with those cities. So that's a really important part of the, the, the process as well. And I think, uh, so that's it. So, so uh, we're really going to dive into what these mean. And then you'll see the other pages in the document are um, some specific targets. We can measure our progress, um, some actions and kind of groups of strategies that we're going to get into. So we, that's what we're really going to spend our time on in the afternoon. And we're going to look at some real-world examples of how to, how to do that and then really some of the challenges that we have in our community. So we're going to be walking through this plan. You know, we gave you a preview right before lunch. Um, we want to give you a sense of where the assembly and really the whole community is headed in the next few years on housing policy. So to set the context, again, we looked at the vision, we looked at the goals, we looked at really the big picture guiding direction of this plan. Um, what we're going to spend time on is how we actually do all of this work. Um, so to set the context, I want to emphasize that what we're sharing today is the assembly's strategic plan for housing. It, there are other plans that set the community's vision, including our comprehensive plan and our land use plan. We also have many plans uh, from partners, you know, the organizations, what they're going to do, or um, recommendations like what uh, ACDA shared this morning. Um, so we're not intending to replace those plans. This is really to help focus policymakers' work and our partners on what we want to accomplish um, in the next few years. So in our plan, uh, we seek to build upon the vision and goals the community and our partners have already expressed and really narrowed it down to the Assembly's part in all of this. Um, and I really just want to point out, um, when you're writing a strategic plan, you really think about who's going to be doing the work. So again, it's not that it's just the 12 assembly members and our staff, and really not just the whole municipality. This is an everybody plan. But we wanted to write our, our actions and our goals in a way that reflects what we're going to do. The assembly doesn't build housing, right? We're not going to go out there and start building apartments. Um, so we're really looking at how we incentivize more housing. We want to increase home ownership. The assembly is not buying houses for people. So, so how, do we, how do we increase people's ability to buy a house? Um, and, and so on. So that's really thinking about kind of, again, framing. We want to look at the big picture. We want to think about the outcomes of more housing. And then we have to take a couple steps back to how we can encourage that to happen, how we can incentivize that, and how we can remove barriers. Um, so we're almost there, but we need your help to make sure we're on track. So over the last few years, um, the Assembly has been gathering suggestions from city planners, uh, industry experts, community members, reviewing prior plans, really this first set of bubbles there. There's a lot of um, uh, policy direction that the Assembly has set. There's studies and plans, prior actions, really a, a, at least over a decade of work that we were able to build on when looking and building this strategic plan. Um, 
and we've already done some of that work. So uh, we've eliminated parking minimums. We've made it easier to build accessory dwelling units. And then we have some uh, current legislation out there that has already been discussed and we will continue to be working on. Um, we've, so we've got a big list of things that we want to do next. But we know we can't do it all, so we've really been working to narrow down that list to the, the ones that we feel will have the most impact and the quickest return. Uh, and I'll say quickest return because we want to we want to start showing those wins. Uh, Chuck said that we wanted to see a lot of small wins, right? Um, so some of those are going to be making those changes quickly. Other ones are going to take time, like the idea of an infrastructure bank. We're not going to do that tomorrow, but we can start laying the groundwork to get there. Um, so what we're sharing with you is really, like I said, a draft plan, lots of actions on there, and we really want to see what you, the community, think what our industry experts think, what community members think, where should we really focus our time. And then we want to come back in December so that we can formally uh, finalize and adopt the plan. So again, this is not the only opportunity to engage. We know that we just put it out there to the public. Um, our goal is not to put this on Tuesday's meeting and just pass it. We really want to work it through this process uh, and not, not to slow things down, but to really make sure that we're headed in the right direction. Um, sorry, I think I got ahead of myself. Okay. Um, so we took all of our ideas, grouped them into six general categories of strategies. And so those are what's up on the board and also on the plan itself. And underneath each of the strategies, you'll see a bunch of specific actions that we can take. Um, so we grouped them into these six categories, these potential actions. And, and as you go into the breakouts, we'll go into what that looks like. Um, but what we're really asking you to do is to look at real-world examples um, individual properties, stories from individual people looking for housing, and really think about which of the actions on this list can help solve the problems that are brought up in these examples that we're going to go through. Because really the goal is to, to bring it back to real-world examples, to local issues, and to make sure that we're focusing on what we feel is, is going to make a big difference in our community. So, um, so I also want to say that if, we, if you have ideas after the forum, you can send them to us later. You can email uh, the uh, assembly email. It's uh, wwmas at anchorjk.gov. We can make that available to everybody. Hopefully you've, you've sent in testimony before, but if you haven't, this is a great first time to try. Um, and we really want to encourage you to, um, to help us be part of the solution, help us figure out what this plan needs to look like, and then over the next few years, help us do this work. Um, you know, going back to Chuck's point, we need to do the work, we need to do the thing, we need to get out there and do it, and I know everybody in this room is excited to, to get to work on that. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. We just heard some of the Anchorage Assembly's Community Housing Action Summit from earlier this month. We'll have links to all of the materials on the Addressing Alaskans page. Find us on the web at alaskapublic.org, the Alaska Public Media app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ammon Swenson. Thanks for listening. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.